Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And Rick, uh, you're in, uh, according to my schedule, you're not here in the studio with me. I heard you're in Iowa. I'm in Iowa. This is this is the place. And then pretty soon all the presidential candidates are going to be here once impeachment wraps up. But uh, I, I've checked on it and the Iowa caucuses are definitely Monday. There's no delays, nothing else, not, no news that can intervene that's going to change it. Uh, it's all going to happen. It's all going to go down here on Monday night. And it doesn't matter. Whatever Lamar Alexander does, it doesn't affect <laughs> the Iowa caucuses, right? By the way, Lamar, a, a veteran of the Iowa caucuses, right. uh, he, had a, he had quite a moment out there. Um I remember, remember he had the ABCs, Alexander Beats Clinton, uh, and even Forbes and Graham, too. I think he was, he was quite uh, interesting. Anyway, so obviously, impeachment trial is about to wrap up. Uh, with Lamar's decision, all the drama is gone, no witnesses. All that, uh, all that really awaits is the inevitable. But, Rick, you're in Iowa. We are just uh, days away from the Iowa caucuses, and... We thought it would be a great idea to do in a kind of you know a variation of our emergency podcast by going uh, to to somebody that knows the Iowa caucus as well, perhaps all too well, uh, but uh, a, a good friend of the podcast, Mr. Howard Deem, former governor of Vermont and former presidential candidate, former chairman of the DNC, uh, Governor Dean. Are you with us? I am with you. Thank you. Hey, thank you for joining us here. We we figured we'd, we'd check in. You you know a thing or two about Iowa. Um, I do, I do, and 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 about the uh, the challenges facing the Democratic Party, and I just want to get get a sense for you, uh, for, for, from you, what 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 is what is going on in the minds of these candidates, of a candidate out there uh, in in Iowa with a when 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 you were doing it, there was really kind of a three way battle uh, 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 to win the caucuses. Now we have maybe a four or five way battle. What, 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 what's going on with these candidates now as they face this, uh, this final stretch? Um, well, it depends how well they know what happens. One of the things I learned was that you can have a huge momentum shift in the last three days. Um, so, I mean, the things people, you know, Iowans are very kind of um, thoughtful, and they're going to calculate who can win uh, against Trump, and they're going to calculate who they like, and what message they want to send, and it's all going. To, and they change their minds all the time. In fact, they actually change their minds of the caucuses, because this is a big discussion inside a room. Some of them will be small rooms with eight or ten people in them, and some of them will be, will be 150 people in them. And they'll have one vote, and then if the, some people don't get 15 percent of the delegates of the people at the caucus, they'll have a second vote, and the people who didn't get uh, 15% can combine their votes for a single candidate or go over to one of the candidates that's already been selected. So it's a, it's a kind of weird process, and it's a very interesting one. What it does show is how well people can organize. And, and that second choice is is so key. Uh, so you, you went in – let's, let's just go back in time for a minute before we, we talk about what's next. You, you, you went in 2004. You had been – you had been the surprise breakthrough candidate in the fall. Uh, you know, I mean, kind of coming out of nowhere. I remember well uh, the, the the surge you had, which began, as I recall, about in September or August, September, um, and then and then you, you go into the caucus. You'd started to lose a little bit of momentum. What were you expecting when you went in? Were you were you did you think well, you had a chance I mean, of winning? You know, you're always expecting to win because otherwise you wouldn't be in the business. But I could feel it slipping away with about three weeks to go. Uh, we weren't sharp. 
we hadn't done the follow-up calls that needed to be done. I always, you know, run my mouth. I always say what I think, which is not always a good thing in politics, although people like it. Um, and I could feel it slipping away. I was surprised at how well I didn't do, how badly I did. Uh, I came in at 18%, and at one point that was around 35. So uh, it was. It did end up as a three-way race, and it went on until Wisconsin. So I kept coming in third, and then I figured, well, <laughs> you're not going to. This isn't going to change. Um, but you know, the, the mood shifted. First of all, Kerry had a great organization, which he built at the last minute just to save it, what was the insider candidate that was supposed to win. And secondly. Um, you know, they got people to the polls, and it was very, very good. And it was all put together in the last four weeks when Mary Beth Cahill and Michael Hooley showed up and organized the hell out of everybody. And the other thing that happened was people looked at Kerry and they thought, okay, this guy this guy can beat Bush. He's an inside-the-beltway guy. He's a traditional candidate, and we don't know about Dean. He's always he's getting people excited, but he gets excited himself, and we don't really – know about him and i think they opted for john because they thought he could beat bush which he almost another did piece, yeah in 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 uh, in, a, in a in a wild election all around but another piece of the lore of 2004 uh governor is is a the the idea that dick gephardt uh decided to uh to essentially take you down to attack you in the in the closing weeks and it's been relayed now a couple of caucuses later as uh, a murder-suicide pact, or mutually assured destruction, and it, it's colored to the campaigns that I've talked to. Some of the decisions not to attack the other candidates, and I've continued to be struck by how mild this campaign has been. Uh, some sharp debate exchanges aside, there hasn't been a single negative ad, Democrat on Democrat, uh, in this in, in this race. The gloves have stayed on. Uh, not you, exactly. You, there's been a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, there's well, some stories that have been printed, which clearly have been leaked to reporters by other campaigns um but that's true i mean i i you know i didn't actually know that my campaign manager was attacking gephardt <laughs> said you know they didn't bother to inform me that i wouldn't let him do it because it's perfectly obvious that when two people attack each other in a multi-person race they vote for somebody else and the the obvious proof of that was jesse ventura who was a professional of wrestler who ended up as governor of the state of Minnesota because the Democrats and the Republicans just beat the living daylights out of each other and people got sick of it. So I would say the murder-suicide pact was uh, was certainly something that didn't help. But do you think that these, so do you think we're just missing the, the biggest blows because it's happening quietly? It does, it just, it feels like a pretty tame caucus to me. Uh, no, there's uh, a lot of stuff going on underneath. I mean, the stuff that I, I forgot somebody said that, you know, I'm sure there were phone calls. There were, Some of them were ca- exposed. I don't remember which campaign it was, but I think the Warren campaign, campaign was putting yeah, out the, stuff that somebody Sanders was versus Warren. really yeah. in league with the billionaires or something like that. And, you know, so, of course, this stuff is going on. There was one candidate who I'm not going to mention who called, who his people called uh, Iowa voters in the middle of the night and said, we're from the Howard Dean campaign. We have some questions for you about the environment. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> So there's plenty of that stuff going on. It's just not getting in the paper. So I, I wanted to ask you, one of the uh, most uh, effective and, and high-profile uh, surrogates for Bernie Sanders, which, which has been important because uh, he's been stuck in Washington, has been uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. And a, a while back, she uh, warned that the Democrats 
could be create too big of a tent um, and and said, uh, and this, this is a quote from her, in any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party, but in America we are. And I, I, my interpretation of, of, of her warning is that when you when you have such a big tent and you try to appeal to uh, to such a broad ideological spec, you know, spectrum, uh, you end up not having the same firepower and punch. Your message gets diluted. Uh, you end up compromising too much on principles. Um, that's like the exact opposite message that we are hearing uh, from Joe Biden. I'm wondering, where do, where do you, where do you, what's your take on that debate within the party? Well, you know, we don't have a multi-party system, and AOC is right in the sense that if we had a multi-party system, we'd have narrower tents, and then you'd make the coalitions after the election, as they do in parliamentary democracies. Well, here, um, we make the coalitions before the election. So I think and she's her complaint is fine. It's just not, it's a nice observation, but until we have a multi-party system with ranked choice voting, so it works, um, this isn't going to happen. Uh, but, so, but, but, but I don't think she's so making... I, and the other thing I think about this, if you want to govern, you are your, the American people are a big tent. Mm-hmm. So there are some lines that you can't cross. Like, we're not going to be in favor of restricting women's rights to run their own lives. We're not going to be in favor of taking away people's health care, as Trump is, or getting rid of pre-existing conditions, as the Republicans are. We're not going to do that. There's some lines that no Democrat's going to cross, and if they do, they won't be uh, elected. But uh, you've got to build a big tent, because the American people are all across the ideological lot. You've got to govern the country in the end. And the truth is, even... This is why I think AOC is not exactly, I think she's technically right, but not practical here. Even in Europe, in the parliamentary democracies, where you get the Greens and the very far left and the very far right and all that, they end up having to be in the same tent. And the Spanish uh, prime minister just put together a coalition with the Greens. Uh, A conservative party in Austria put together a a coalition with the Greens because they didn't want to go to the far right, which has been caught in some big scandal. So, you know, it... At the end of the day, no matter what system you have, you have to be somewhere near where the public is. Governor, I, I, I want to ask about the, 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 the possibility, maybe the probability of a, of a, of a drawn-out process in this. I know you, you went on the record recently saying the party should um, get in line uh, uh, to, to make sure that, that Trump is defeated. Uh, uh, you don't have a candidate in this race yet, am I correct? No, I don't. Nope, uh, I don't even have any idea who I'm going to vote for. I don't even have a sub Rosa candidate. <laughs> I, well, well, there's a certain candidate that might be uh, that might be favored in Vermont. We'll have to, we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, but Bernie's going to win the Vermont primary. Yeah, I think he's shocked gonna, if he didn't. I think that, I think that's right. But now you you though you'll get a maybe a more important vote though at the Democratic National Convention as a super delegate. Now the Democratic Party, as you know, as you're as a former chairman, you'll be a, you'll be a super delegate, an automatic delegate. The party, as you know, made this reform to the rules, which means you don't get to vote on the first ballot unless it's only ceremonial. But in the contested convention scenario, you get you get an opportunity to vote. Could you imagine supporting someone who is not the the delegate leader? Uh, In essence, uh, you could. You think that's that's a possibility. Uh, First of all, superdelegates have never decided the outcome of election ever. Never. Um, right. Secondly, superdelegates are only there because after the 1968 uh, convention, they democratized the Democratic Party, which is a good thing because the 1968 convention was a horror, horror show, obviously, for those who remember it. And 
elected some uh, nominated somebody who uh, had only run in about six primaries in the back room. The problem is once you democratize the whole thing, the office holders weren't showing up at the convention because the only way to get to the convention under the McGovern rules was you got to run, and that meant the officers, and the senators, and the congressmen would have to run against their activist base, which is a total losing proposition because. Uh, you either beat them and they get mad, or you lose and you look like an idiot. <laughs> so they didn't. Right, that's the history. I, I get. I get. So the only reason they put superdelegates is in so the elected officials would come. Not one time since superdelegates have existed have they affected the outcome of an election. Not one time. But you're saying they could. I mean, or they, they, you think it's a possibility sure that not only could they, there could be a brokered convention. We just haven't. We talk like this every four years, and then. It doesn't happen. And the last brokered convention we had was in 1952. So, well, I mean, we can certainly talk, and it's fun to gab about and gossip about, but that's all it is, is gossip. Right now, I think there's about a 2% chance of a brokered convention. We'll see what happens as we get closer. 2%. Uh, 2%. Yeah. So, and, and if, 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 if Bernie Sanders goes into that convention with a delegate lead but not enough to clinch and – you know this. I mean, either either Biden or even the, you know, the Bloomberg scenario is. You know, he's he's uh, you know caught fire Super Tuesday and beyond, and he's he's got a bunch of delegates. Do, do you you think the party? You know, does Bernie Sanders unite behind somebody who was betraying him and then beats him at the well, convention? Depends how big. Look, if Bernie Sanders or anybody else, let's just say Elizabeth Warren, not just you know why pick on Bernie. Uh, or anybody goes in and they're short 50 votes, they're going to get the nomination. Mm-hmm. If they're short, if, if they have 510 votes and the next person has 506, then, you know, it's up for grabs. And it's a pretty skinny argument to say, I got four more votes than you did, but I'm a thousand votes away from winning, and I should therefore win. I mean, people right. will make that argument, but I don't think it holds water. This, look, at the end of the day, whether you line up behind the guy that beat you or not, is about your own personality, not about the margin of your loss. If you're willing to do what's right for the country, any one of these people is better than Trump. Any of them. And I'm going to vote for whoever the hell gets the nomination in the general and go ahead and work my butt off for them because Trump is a disaster. He's a crook. Uh, he doesn't give a damn about the country. Uh, all he wants to do is make money at our expense. And I'm not putting up with somebody like that. And I don't care who the nominee is from that point of view. What I want is somebody who can win and somebody who can take the Senate in with them because we now have a great chance with Doug Collins running in Georgia of picking up two seats in Georgia in addition to Colorado and Maine and so forth. So, so we, I, I know you have to go. I appreciate you, you talking to us uh, here going into the Iowa caucus. The one last big question for you, uh, picking up on, on, on what you just said. So, so, you know, Donald Trump is here. He's Got a lot of advantages that he didn't have last time. Uh, first of all, he may have a billion dollars between the, the RNC and his campaign. Uh, he's got a, a, a strong economy to run on. Uh, he has a unified Republican Party, whereas you know half the Republican Party last time seemed to be against him. Uh, he, he seems to be a more formidable candidate in many ways than he was uh, four years ago. What do you think are the – what are the odds that he pulls this off, that he, that he wins re-election? I, I mean, I yeah, obviously know you. I, I obviously know, given what you said, you're going to be fighting like hell to make sure that yeah, doesn't the happen. Of, the odds but, of him winning re-election are fifty-fifty. Wow. This is a guy who most people wouldn't let in their living rooms with their children. Mm-hmm. He's a terrible example, and so, so, but he's got a great economy. 
Um, and he's got this loyal fan base that's terrified the Republicans. So it comes down to this turnout. Our core constituency is under 35 women and people of color. If we get those people to the polls, we're going to win. If we don't get those people to the polls, we're not going to win. There has not been a single poll that's reputable since Trump took office, including the day he took office, where more than 50, anything close to 50% of the American people were for him. So it's all about turnout. So we've got to get somebody who's going to turn people out, and we have to have an effort that's going to turn people out. And if we do, our people, young, who voted 69% for the Democrats in the last three cycles in, in the interim between 2016 and now, uh, people of color and women, particularly college-educated suburban women, which is why I think we now have a shot at Georgia with Doug Collins in the race. I can't imagine the suburban woman in Georgia voting for Doug Collins. And I think Doug Collins will beat the hell out of Kelly Loeffler. Governor Dean, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. We look forward to catching up with you uh, along the way. Thanks very much. Thank you. So, so Rick, uh, 50-50, uh, 50-50 chance. 50-50 chance. There's another 50 in my head with, with Howard Dean, and I think you got hints of it with his talk about Georgia. You know, he instituted, to some the fanfare, 50, yeah. uh, the 50-state strategy, the 50-state yeah. strategy. And I remember talking to uh, to. Democratic leaders in places like Nebraska uh, that never got any kind of attention uh, before, uh, and you know what? Um, it, it 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 was uh, for its time, maybe a little bit ahead of its time, as this time at the NC chair. You start to see them building something. What I'm struck by is how much that has fallen away, uh, and uh, for the party now, um, there are some new states that they'll put on the map, but. To his point about the, the the Trump fan base, you know, there are vast portions of this country where the Democrats just can't run candidates at all, and they just have to write off not just presidential races but also Senate seats. Uh, there's stirrings again about trying to bring that back and and to mobilize people in a way that changes it, and that was one of the keys in the midterms. But uh, the Democratic Party right now does not feel like a 50-state party, uh, despite what Tom Perez says and despite what Tom, Howard Dean tried to do. It's it's interesting that he is so far away from endorsing anybody. He's got you know you, you know we we often talk about the home state role. Uh, it doesn't sound like he's uh, if you were going to line up with Bernie Sanders, I think he would have already been there. That's right. Although what he, what he was talking about about young people is a major part of the Bernie coalition. I mean, we're likely to see we're seeing it already. This enormous gap among uh, between young voters and old voters. Young voters are wild for Bernie and uh, almost no interest at all in Joe Biden. Uh, for older voters, it's uh, it, it's almost the mirror image. Uh, and we'll see that in the caucuses, I would presume. A lot of people are talking about record turnout. A lot of that, I would presume, was going to be driven by uh, younger voters who are uh, more likely to support Bernie Sanders. Uh, but the Iowa caucus goers is, tends to be a little bit on the older side, the traditional ones. And I've seen it just in the last couple of days in terms of what I think of as an energy gap between candidates. There's definitely more excitement around Bernie Sanders, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Elizabeth Warren, than there is around Joe Biden and around his events. Um, maybe it doesn't matter, though, because of the organization and because uh, a lot of folks who are just good, loyal Democrats don't necessarily go to campaign events, but they, they will caucus. That's the, that's the Biden view of the world. And you're telling me it's going to come down to turnout. In other words, whoever uh, turns out more of their voters is going to win? 
You heard it from Governor Dean himself. I guess, <laughs> we, right, should, right, I guess we, should, we should write it down. But the, the, the interesting thing about Iowa is that we've had uh, a bunch of polls recently, and some of them have Bernie Sanders' name first, some of them have Joe Biden's name first. There's clearly a top four who are in contention, plus Amy Klobuchar is uh, uh, just behind them in the fifth. Um, they can't all walk away with delegates because of the 15% rule. Um, only some of them are going to walk away very devastated by the uh, by the results here. Uh, but it's possible that all of these polls are right. The only difference is just in how you assume the the, the, the turnout will be. And if you assume that there's going to be a lot of first-time caucus goers and younger voters, you can make your argument for Bernie. Bernie you think it's going to look more like previous cycles. You can see why Joe Biden uh, uh, turns out uh, on top. But uh, we're not going to know until until Monday night. And uh, it, it is going to be a, a, a photo finish of uh, of epic proportions. And what when will we know the results? I mean, the good thing about caucus is we know everybody shows up at 7 o'clock. We know it all happens. But how long... Is it going to take for us to know uh, who the winner was? Yeah, so you know, seven central is eight eastern. Um, I think by nine thirty or ten o'clock uh, eastern time, we're going to have most of the caucus results in. Uh, um, the, the the question in my mind, John, as we discussed on our podcast uh, earlier this week, is the possibility of multiple winners because of the way that the the alignments work. Uh, Several people are likely to get out there and say, "Yeah, I just won the Iowa caucuses," and then get out and go to go to New Hampshire. Uh, so uh, I think it's it, it's going to be if, if it's as close a race as it as it was last time, and that a lot of people think it's going to be, it's going to be muddled. Um, I, I think we've seen Iowa already have an impact in the uh, early exits of people like Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro. That's because they didn't get traction here. I don't know how much more. Uh, we see things winnow uh, as a result of the results. It's possible a candidate or two drop, but uh, these candidates are in it for the long haul. All right. Rick Klein, Jonathan Carl, Powerhouse Politics Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We will be back with our regularly scheduled podcast once we know the winners in Iowa.